And we do that for very biblical reasons, as we're going to see this morning. But in many places, people are confused because simply all children are baptized, whether or not they have any real connection with the church, any living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that gives rise to a quasi-magical understanding of what baptism is, as though simply sprinkling water on a baby made the baby a Christian. Well, we completely uh, refute that kind of understanding. It's got no place in the Bible uh, or in the teaching of the Reformed Church. And what we're going to look at this morning is the biblical basis for baptizing both believers and the children of believers. We're doing that not to defend our church tradition, but to see what the Bible actually says about this, to look at the the meaning of covenant, and to see that if we understand the covenant properly, then it it must necessarily include the children of believers as well as those believers, adult believers themselves. And we're going to do that by looking at Genesis chapter 17. And you might ask, well, why are we studying this morning a chapter in the Old Testament which doesn't mention baptism? And the reason is that we understand the Bible to be one book uh, with one author. And the way that people were saved, the, the way that people were made right with God was the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament and as it is today. Now a lot of people get this wrong and they think, well, in the Old Testament people were saved by being good. You know, they kept the commandments, uh, they observed all the, the rituals in the temple, and because they did these things, they were saved. God rewarded them with eternal life. But in the New Testament things are so much different now it's by grace, now it's by believing in the, the work of Jesus. Well, that, of course, is, is wrong. It's, it's very wrong. It's a misunderstanding of the Old Testament. The, the saints in the Old Testament, men like Abraham, were saved in the same way as they are saved in the New. They're saved by grace. They're saved by faith. The difference is that their faith looked forward to one who would come, who had not yet come. They were believing in the promises that God had given of Jesus coming in time. And we look back to the event back then when Jesus came. But we're saved in the same way. No one will ever be in heaven because they were very good. No one will ever be in heaven because they've earned heaven. They've done enough to be there. The only people who will be in heaven are those who have, with empty hands, received the free gift of God in Jesus Christ. And it's the same in the Old as in the New Testament. No difference. And we have got signs that speak of grace in the Old and in the New Testament. Now, in the New Testament, uh, we've got the Lord's Supper and we've got baptism. Uh, These are the only sacraments that we have, the only ones that Jesus instituted and that speak of grace, that are visible signs of grace. The Lord's Supper is a meal 
and we take that regularly. Uh, in, our, in our church, we take it four times a year. Um, other churches would take it more often. Uh, and the meal is a reminder of what God has done in Jesus. Uh, we have bread, which is a, a tangible uh, symbol. It's a symbol that we taste. And it reminds us that Jesus' body was broken on the cross. And the wine is reminding us of the fact that he shed his blood. So we see the costliness of salvation in the Lord's Supper. And we do that regularly. And it's like, well, as we go on as Christians, we are needy and we're hungry. And we need to be nourished. And this is God's way of saying, remind yourself and be strengthened regularly by this sacrament. Now, baptism... On the other hand, it's not something that is done often by the individual. It happens only once. It happens only once. It's a sign of belonging. It's a sign of the beginning of the Christian life. But again, it's speaking about salvation. It's speaking about what God has done. That's what the two sacraments have in common. Neither of them speak about what we're doing, but they're speaking about what God has done. It's not my faith that's being spoken of in the Lord's Supper. It's God's act. It's not my faith that's being spoken of in baptism. It's God's act in Jesus Christ. Now in the Old Testament, uh, we also have two signs for God's people. Uh, We have circumcision. And that was a sign of belonging. It was only done once by its very nature. You couldn't do it again. It was just done once. And then there was the Lord's Supper. No, not the Lord's Supper. There was the Passover. And the Passover was a reminder that God had taken uh, his people out of Egypt. It was a reminder of salvation, of the great exodus. And it was to stir up the gratitude of God's people. And they were to do it every year. Now, it doesn't take a huge amount of insight to see the connection. That we have in baptism something that ties into circumcision. We have in the Lord's Supper something that ties into the Passover. There's a continuity here. Which is what we would expect. Because it's one author, one book, one way of salvation. So let's look together at the background of baptism that we have in circumcision. Uh, Let's see what circumcision itself meant and what how that relates to what baptism means. And then let's ask the question, uh, who should be baptised? Who should be baptised? Well, chapter 17 is all about a covenant. And we need to have a clear understanding of what covenant means. A covenant is, very simply, a covenant is a biblical relationship between God and man. It's God saying, this is how I will relate to you. This is how our relationship is to be ordered. It's not an agreement between equals. We have got a responsibility towards God, yes. But God is always the, the superior one who gives a gift to us. And we receive that gift. God is always gracious in his covenant. And Abraham is the great model of the graciousness of God's covenant. Because Abraham didn't earn the covenant. 
He didn't earn the covenant. And in Romans, uh, Paul uses Abraham as a test case. Uh, a test case to show that salvation is simply a gift. Uh, it's never earned. Uh, it's got nothing even to do with circumcision or, or, or baptism. Now, uh, doing these things don't in any way earn your salvation. They're, they're simply signs of salvation. And so in chapter 15 of Genesis and verse 6, there's a famous statement that Paul will quote uh, in his letter to the Romans. And he quotes it to show that we're saved by faith just in the same way as Abraham was saved by faith. And here's this famous verse. Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was his faith in the Lord was set to his account. Now, when you credit somebody with something, he's not earned it. It's been, it's an accounting to his side of what someone else has done. Faith doesn't earn anything. Faith is simply the instrument, the road across which God's gift of salvation runs. And Abraham uh, was saved. He had faith before he was circumcised. Uh, he's given this righteousness by God back in chapter 15. And it's only now in chapter 17 that he has the sign of circumcision. And Paul's argument is quite clear. Circumcision doesn't save you. Because Abram was saved before he was circumcised. Baptism doesn't save you. Only faith in Christ will save you. So this covenant that we're speaking about is an arrangement. And God our King lays down the way by which we are going to relate to him. And in it he gives us all that we will need to be made right before him. He credits to our account our right standing, our righteousness. And that happens when we have faith in his son. Well, in chapter 15, God has promised descendants to Abraham. And Abraham asks God, well, that's all very well. But how will I know? How will I know that I will have uh, descendants and the land of Canaan? And God makes a covenant with him. God makes a covenant. Now, in Abraham's day, when, when people were making a, a serious commitment to one another, uh, there was a strange ritual that they would do. And what happened was they would take an animal and they would kill the animal and it would be cut in two. And they would walk between the animal and what they were doing in that ritual, walking between the two halves of an animal, was saying, if I break my promise to you, let it be to me as it is to this animal. So it's a pretty spooky uh, oath. It's a very solemn oath. And in the vision that Abraham has, there is only one party that goes through the two halves of the animal. Abraham has a vision. And, uh, sorry, Abraham uh, is, is told to to, uh, to slay uh, 
animals. And in his vision, he sees uh, God uh, in the appearance of a, a burning pot and a torch going through the two halves of the animal. God is taking on himself the curse of the covenant. If there's a breach in this covenant, I will bear the blame. And we can only ever be right. We can only ever be in heaven if we are blameless, if we have got no sin. And on the cross of Calvary, Jesus is doing the very thing that Abraham saw in his vision. Jesus is taking on himself the curse of the covenant. He was made sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. We've got Calvary in Genesis 15. This is the covenant. God is providing all that we need, even taking on himself the curse of our failure. It's a powerful picture. Now in chapter 17, uh, we're 13 years on. God gives to Abram a sign of that covenant. Something that will always remind him of God's covenant. Sarah has not yet had a son. Ishmael was born to Hagar. And they've had 13 years to, to think about the absolute helplessness of their aged and infirm condition. And then the Lord appears to Abram and he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. The great king has come ahead of this covenant sign he's going to give and he declares to him his glory. And Abram makes the only response that you can make in the presence of such glory. He falls face down before him. And then there's a call to Abram to be consecrated. Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. <laughs> it's a reminder that uh, in the life of faith, we're walking forward or we're, we're not walking at all. It's like uh, riding a bike. Unless you keep moving forward, uh, you're going to topple over. Uh, we have to be making fresh steps of faith, uh, fresh uh, acts of obedience moving forward. And we're walking before God in his presence, conscious that we're his. And up until this point, Abraham had sometimes been walking before Sarah. He was more conscious of her and what she uh, wanted. Now he was to walk exclusively before God and he was to live blamelessly before him. Like people of old, like Enoch and Noah and so on. Now that didn't earn him God's salvation, but it showed him it showed others, rather, that he was a man of the covenant, that he had come into a relationship with God. It was a sign of his commitment to God. And God goes on to remind Abram of the promise of descendants and says that he's going to confirm this promise shortly. But at this point, he also enlarges the promise and he says, as well as descendants, kings will come from your line. Kings. And Sarah's name is to be changed as well to reflect that. From Sarah, she becomes Sarah. Now, at one level, it meant, literally, that the kings of Israel would be descended from Abraham. But go another level. 
and it's looking forward to the coming of the King of Kings because Jesus would also come from Abraham's line. Down through the years of time, there would be a baby born in a cattle shed in Bethlehem. A baby not only of David's line, but Abraham's line. Son of Eve. According to the promise, he would come in time and he would save his people from their sins. And there's a sense in which Abraham grasped this, however dimly, because Jesus could say, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And we begin to see a wee bit of how Abraham was saved. It was through Jesus, through the one who would come down through his line. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And then God gives to Abraham a sign that is going to remind him of and assure him of this promise that he will be his God and all the promises that he's given are true. And the sign's circumcision. It was a bloody sign. It was performed on the organ of reproduction because the covenant that it referred to had a relation to descendants. But what did it mean? How does it tie in with baptism? What's the connection? Well, there's a, in a strange sense, it, it actually meant judgment. It was a cutting rite. Just as the, that animal had been cut, so the sign of circumcision involved cutting off of flesh. And there was a reminder of the, the sword of judgment. It's clear in the, the passage in verse 14 when it says those who break the covenant will be cut off. Descendants are threatened by being cut off from fellowship with God if they break the covenant. But it's also a sign of, of cleansing because in the Old Testament uh, a cleansed heart was spoken of as a circumcised heart. If you were made right with God, if your heart was right, you were said to have a circumcised heart. So it denotes a life that is cleansed from sin. We're made right with God by his act. We can't cleanse ourselves. We can't clean up our act. But God can. Circumcision reminds us of that. He'll bear the guilt. That was the meaning of God passing through the two halves of the animal. He will take the fall. Ultimately on the cross of Calvary. Just how we're cleansed. And it's a sign of belonging to the family. It's a sign of union with the Lord. When you had this sign in it, it was actualized by faith. You were in the family of God. But if you were a covenant breaker, if you had rebelled and rejected, then you were out of family. So it's a sign of belonging and of being united with God and his people. All these things then are in circumcision. Now, baptism is actually speaking of the same things. How do I say that? Well, speaking of judgment, first of all. It spoke, when Jesus spoke of the cross, he spoke it of the cross as his baptism. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how constrained I am until it's accomplished. Never wondered why Jesus spoke of the cross as a baptism kind of dispels some of the ideas that baptism is a kind of cute thing, isn't it? 
Jesus' cross was his baptism. He was being cut off from the land of the living. He was taking the fall. He was, he was realizing that vision that Abraham had of one who would go through the two halves of the severed animal and bear the curse. Jesus was doing that. Jesus was going to be judged in our place. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how constrained I am until it's accomplished. Peter speaks of the waters of the flood uh, uh, and speaks of it as cleansing and says it's like baptism. This water symbolizes baptism which now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. So it speaks of cleansing, speaks of being united with the Lord and just, justified through him. Romans 6, 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And it speaks of being a member of the family. Jesus in the Great Commission uh, says to his, his disciples, go, go and teach all nations. Go and teach all nations. Make disciples of them. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So, circumcision and baptism are speaking of the same things. They're speaking of judgment and salvation. Speaking of salvation as cleansing. Of justification. Of being united with, with God. Of being united with his family. They're speaking of exactly the same things. Who therefore should be baptized? All who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have placed their trust in him, should be baptized. Because Jesus commands it. Simple as that. It's an act of obedience. It's not complicated. If you believe in Jesus, you need to be baptized. What about the children of believers? Well, it's impossible to go to, say, the, Acts, the book of the Acts and to prove conclusively that children were baptized and conversely to prove conclusively that they weren't baptized. So neither uh, side of the argument can really prove its case from some of these household baptisms. But think about this. Uh, if you had been... <laughs> Let's think of that Martian observer, that Martian visitor. If you'd been that Martian visitor on the day when Abraham was circumcised. The impression that you would have had was that circumcision was only for adults. There's no children mentioned. Only Ishmael at 13 is now regarded by Jews as an adult. There's only mention of adults. But as the years go on, with the exception of those who come into the Jewish faith from outside, it's mainly children, eight days old. And when the gospel is proclaimed at first, understandably, it's mainly adults that we hear of. But down through the years, the children of these believers become the predominant ones who are baptized. Now it's inconceivable, isn't it, that the sign should be given to children in Abraham's day 
and withdrawn from children in Jesus' day. Because everything else is going in the other direction. Everything else is pointed to a greater inclusion. If you were a godly girl, a godly woman, in Abram's day, you didn't have the sign. You didn't have that visible sign because of its very nature. But come Jesus, there is this broadening out. It's no longer just a Jewish nation, but the promise to Abraham is fulfilled at last in you. All the nations of the world will be blessed. And in Christ, there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, for all are one in Christ Jesus. See, it's an expansion of blessing. Are you telling me that children are excluded now from the sign when they had it in Abraham's day? And the blessing has been increased through Jesus. I can hardly think so. For 2,000 years, parents had the blessing of the reminder of God's promise being to them and to their children. They were encouraged by Psalm 103. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. His righteousness with their children's children. With those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. And they look at the little child playing on the floor. And they look at one another. And they would find comfort from the promise given to Abraham. I will be your God. And the God of your descendants after you. What a blessing. And that covenant that God made with Abraham is still in force. It's still the covenant of grace. It was then in the bud. Now in the flower. Well, that leaves us to make our response. How do we respond to the, the preaching of the gospel through the sign of the covenant? There's usually, in any uh, gathering like this, there's usually a number of different categories of people. Maybe uh, there's someone this morning who is trusting in Jesus but has never been baptized. You've come to see that you are a sinner. You've come to see that only Jesus can save you and you are trusting in the Lord. If you've not been baptized, then the command is to be baptized. That's quite, quite a clear and straightforward response. And if you have children, then the sign of the covenant is theirs also. And you'll be blessed by obedience to the command. Jesus commands, we obey. Perhaps you were baptized as a child. And today you haven't come yet to a personal faith in Jesus. Uh, you have the sign, but you don't have what the sign speaks of. Can I urge you? To look beyond the sign to the Saviour, to Jesus, and to trust him. Remember what we said, that the sign speaks of judgment and salvation. Unless we have trust in Jesus, it's speaking to you of judgment, of the consequences of not 
placing your faith in Jesus. It's a blessed sign. It's a sign that speaks and invites. Will you come to Jesus? What a wonderful occasion to to come and place your trust in Jesus. As you see, the, the grace of God, his taking the initiative, how he comes to us when we're helpless. Little Juliet will be so helpless when she's carried uh, in one's arms to the font this morning. And we are as helpless in our sin. We can't save ourselves. But Jesus can save you this morning if you'll trust in him. Have faith in him. And if you are baptized and are trusting, then may your faith be strengthened this morning. And may your consecration be deepened because the sign speaks to us of the costliness of your salvation. He took the fall for you. He kept the covenant. How can we not yield our lives in glad obedience? This is what baptism is speaking to us. It's an invitation. It's a warning. It's a confirmation. May God bless it. To each and every one of us. Now before we, we baptize. We're going to, to sing a, a psalm. It's a psalm that speaks of. Uh, how God is pleased with the, the, the praises of, of little ones. Psalm 8 verses 1 to 5. Psalm 8 verses 1 to 5. Hopefully during the singing. We'll have the, the Sunday school rejoin us. Okay, in all the earth, the Lord, our Lord, how glorious is your name. For you have set above the heavens your glory and your fame. From infants and from children's lips, you ordered praise to sound, to silence all your enemies, the wicked to confound. Let's stand and sing.